Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now, he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, may we in this room or who hear this recording have ears to hear Moses and the prophets and the apostles and be molded, changed, filled with compassion and mercy for other sinners. Let this parable, Jesus, that you spoke 2,000 years ago, penetrate. Help me represent it accurately to restate it clearly and work by your Spirit on our hearts. To the glory of your name and this great salvation. <clears throat> Amen. The Apostle John, who walked very closely with the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry, issues this warning to all of us who profess to know the Savior. 
By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In James, Jesus' brother, he asked a similar penetrating question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is not, what we just heard there, salvation by works. Salvation is by faith alone. And that faith that does save is a work of God on the human heart that brings it alive to God and to the plight and the pain and the suffering of others. In other words, genuine faith evidences itself in how it loves other people. And so, James questions here the authenticity of the faith of those who constantly act calloused in their heart toward the plight of others. And it's why the Apostle John just seems to throw up his hands. He says, I cannot understand anybody who would actually be being saved by Jesus to be so hard-hearted toward other fellow believers who desperately need their help. In other words, both John and James view uncaring, stingy, calloused-hearted people is lost, even though they profess Christ. I think this is what's happening when they're saying that. They have the same view of Christianity that Jesus lays out in this parable this morning of the rich man in Lazarus. And so, we're there, Luke chapter 16 But we have paused on verse 18 for a month. So what I want to do first is to jar your memory to the context of what Luke is doing in Luke chapter 16. Remember, Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees who were lovers of money and not, therefore, lovers of God. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus is speaking, and they mocked Him. They ridiculed Him. 
Now, what's he talking about? Jesus had just told a parable in verses 1 to 13 about the unrighteous servant. And the point of the parable is that the way you use your money points to your eternal destiny. You see verse 9? Jesus said, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, worldly currency so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. In other words, money is going to fail. It's not going to do anybody any good on their deathbed. Now, whether, Jesus is saying, whether you have an eternal dwelling, like we're going to see Lazarus has here, whether you have an eternal dwelling will be manifested down here, at least in Heart by the way you used your money, your things, your goods to advance the gospel for the sake of loving others. Or whether you just blew it all on your own selfish pleasures. That's the point of verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? In other words, Jesus is addressing these money-loving religious Pharisees and saying money and lands and possessions and stuff, it is a, a testing mechanism down here that will reflect where our hearts, towards God or away from God, really are. And that's why Jesus concluded in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's the... That's the question that just hangs over us all the time and this morning. Can you pass the test of faithfulness to God with what He gives to you? Do you use it as a means of demonstrating how valuable, precious, God in Jesus Christ is to you right now before you're dead. In chapter 16, Jesus was nailing these Bible-carrying religious people. That's what He's doing. And then verse 14 comes and it says the Pharisees hear Jesus' words and then they react. They ridicule Him. Why? Well, the text says why. Because they were lovers of money, stuff, mammon, worldly goods, temporal pleasures. Jesus then responds to that and exposes where their ridicule, as religious people, is really coming from in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination 
to God. So instead of repentance with these Pharisees in chapter 16, which would have been a sign that they had a genuine love for God, not a use of God for their own exaltation in religion, but a love for God, for, for God as their end, as their treasure, they would have recognized God's sending of their son, but that's not what happened. They didn't repent. And so they tried to justify themselves by trying to make Jesus look foolish with their ridicule. Okay? There's the context. And now, he's still talking to the Pharisees throughout this chapter. That now flows into this next story that he tells about money and hearts towards God. Start with verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now this story is mainly about this rich man. Jesus is, you can just hear it behind, Pharisees, listen to me, money lovers. That's the context. And so here's this rich man. He lived like a king, dressed in purple. Uh, This was a very expensive, probably Phoenician wool that was dyed in this rare sea muscle. Cost a lot of money to get this whole process done. And the underwear the guy wore, top notch. Fine linen. They ate, he and his family, the best cuisine, and food every day. Okay, so Jesus paints a picture. And then in stark contrast, verse 20, and at His gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even worse, even the dog's came and licked his sores. So here's this beggar. He's probably crippled. That's why it says he was laid at his gate every day. Laid outside the gate of a Bel Air estate. Just the stuff that fell from the table that the dogs lick up, he would have been thrilled to have that. The rich man would see this guy every day. We know that because the way Jesus tells the story, he knows his name, Lazarus. And and, and this beggar, poor Lazarus, became just part of the landscape of his coming and his going as he was dressed so finely and smelled good and he'd have to walk by the stench. But soon in the story, the beggar would be gone and his body would be thrown on the fire of the trash heap. So here's this rich man. He considers himself. Don't miss Jesus' point here. I'm not talking about Gentiles. He's talking to Pharisees. This guy considers himself, and Jesus shows this in the parable, a child of Abraham. That meant a lot to him. He believed in God. He wasn't an atheist. He believed that God made a covenant with his forefather, Abraham. He trusted in that. And yet he was heartless 
Jesus told the parable in order to help the Pharisees, which we exist today, to help the Pharisees see themselves in the story. This guy's theology was clearly orthodox. He would have affirmed the divine inspiration of Moses, of the Torah. So why was his heart so calloused toward Lazarus at his gate? This is the, this is the crux of this whole story. Because he did not take the Scripture. He did not take Moses and the prophets that he professed to believe in. He did not take them personally to heart to be moved up vertically toward God and to hear how sinful he was and live a repentant life that overflowed in obedience to Moses and the prophets to show mercy to others. I mean, for instance, in Hosea 6.6, which was right before him the whole time, it has always said, day after day after day, he could have gone to the synagogue and he's heard it read before, but it never hit him. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than your burnt offerings. Or he could have taken to heart Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? Yeah, religious service can be very easy. With burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousand rivers of offering of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No, 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 no. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And that does the Lord require of you. Here it is. To act justly and to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. End quote. That was his problem. Though a synagogue goer, he did not allow the scripture to penetrate his heart. A heart for God vertically is a heart of mercy and compassion for others laid at your gate horizontally. This well-to-do guy, he knew the Ten Commandments by heart. He knew that the last six have to do with how you treat other human beings horizontally. The way Jesus summarized them, love your neighbor as you wish someone would love you if you were in that circumstance. He knew all that. And Jesus just simply tells a story. The rich man... Poor man, clearly he's showing no compassion on him. And then 
Jesus shows us one thing is true for the rich man and for the destitute Lazarus. One thing is true for billionaires and for village people in Haiti. One thing is true for people who make $250,000 a year and those who make $22,000 a year. They all eventually die. And in Jesus' tell here, the poor man goes to paradise with Abraham. And the rich man goes to Hades where there's fire and torment. Pick up with verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This rich man's religion did not save him. Religious activity does not save anybody. Jewishness does not save. Christian culture does not save people. There's only one Savior. And Luke, as he tells now, this parable of Jesus in that context, I just have to be convinced because he knows what he's doing in the narrative. We are supposed to be hearing the reflection of what he has already said back in chapter 3. Remember, through John the Baptist? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Whoever has two tunics, coats, is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. And we hear the reflection. He looks up. Father Abraham! He's a religious Jew. The rich man is one of those who presumed in the right group. I got Abraham is my father. But he bore no genuine fruit as evidence of a heart that trusted God. As evidence of a heart that had been born again. He had no genuine fruit of a heart of saving faith. He shared no food. He shared no clothes. And as John said, the axe finally came. 
and he's dead. This life for him is over. The rich man also died. It's coming. And was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in anguish in this flame. Father Abraham, maybe back in verse 14 where the Pharisees mocked Jesus, it had something, it was something like that in the context. Jesus, don't talk like that about the way we, we deal with our money or don't deal with our money. It has to do with eternity. We're children of Abraham. The counterpart to that attitude in the church today might be people who hear Jesus' parables in this chapter and say, not for me. I'm eternally secure. I've been justified by faith. I accepted Jesus way back when. Don't tell me that what I do with my money, my time, my talents, how I treat other human beings has any reflection on my eternal destiny. See, the answer to that kind of mentality, that perverted gospel called cheap grace is you don't understand. See, yeah, you're saved by faith alone, but saving faith isn't a gimmick. It isn't an emotional manipulation that because when you were a teenager or a child or an adult, you, you, you had a hard time in life, you said, yeah, I'll take Jesus, I don't want to go to hell. That's not what saving faith is. Saving faith is the mercy of God upon the human heart that has been now raised from the dead and it wakes up to the preciousness of the message it just heard in the gospel. And it's changed. And it is that, that faith alone, which does justify, is the ongoing faith of repentance that purifies from the love of money. Purifies unto being useful to other people lovingly. As Paul summarized it in Galatians 5-6. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision all this religiosity people bicker about means a hill of beans. means nothing. doesn't count for anything. But what counts for everything is faith which works itself out in loving others. The point of Jesus' parable is that this man's lack of love and concern and mercy towards Lazarus was evidence that he loved money, things, temporal pleasure, not God. That he had no love, no delight in the eternal treasure of what God would be for him in mercy forever. That he did not store up treasures 
in heaven, as Jesus said to us earlier in Luke. And so, Jesus shows us in this story that death, physical death, sometimes brings a dramatic reversal of lifestyle. It did for Lazarus. His miserable, temporal, finite, mortal state. Dogs would lick the pus out of his sores. He's probably too weak to even get them to stop. And then he finds himself now in joy. Communing with Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets at the banquet, which Jesus so often in His ministry kept referring to this end-time eschatological salvation banquet. That's His lot. And then Jesus pits that up against the reversal of the rich man in the story. Dressed in the most expensive, beautiful, and hip clothes, food, and now, quote, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in torment. Now in the text, notice Jesus says the rich man was buried. didn't say that about Lazarus because he wasn't buried. They burned him. This guy probably had a big funeral. It was really done well. Everybody who was anybody was there. But that's not the end of the story. This guy wasn't gone. He didn't cease to exist. He was in conscious torment. He missed the end-time banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets. As Jesus predicted, many religious people would miss. He had entered eternal punishment. And the text, Jesus puts it this way. He says, the rich man is in Hades. Okay, now that's not an English word. It's it's a Greek word that we just transliterate over into English. Hades is that Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Sheol, which is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament referring to the place where dead human beings, their spirits, gather together. It's this nether, nether Sheol world. And so when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, it translated that word Hades, place of departed spirits or something like that. Now, whether we take Jesus' meaning in this text, he's in Hades, to refer to a place that had two separate compartments, Abraham's bosom and then this big chasm, and way over here, and never shall the twain meet, you know, torment, punishment, I don't really think is 
Jesus' point. I just don't think that's what he's trying necessarily to describe, so I wouldn't push that too far. In other words, Jesus' purpose here is not to lay out the geography for us of the afterlife. Okay. Oh yeah, if you're Lazarus, you're with Abraham, you're in heaven, you can look over and see those in torment and vice versa. I don't think that, that's his point here in the context. I, th- I think at most he is describing probably the intermediate state before the resurrection of the body. Maybe. Or he doesn't really even care. He can just put them all together. Okay, It's about judgment. It's about what happens. This life is done. Two examples. But in other words, the parable is intended, like all parables, to teach a principle or principles. It's not intended to give you a picture we can all draw about what really will happen in the afterlife. Here's the geography of it. It's about pure justice in the end. Lazarus, what a miserable existence. Yes, but pure justice in the end will be done against every one of us sinners. Either in Christ or apart from Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. And He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in anguish in this flame. Now, watch. But Abraham said, Jesus says, Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, excuse me, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. And now, he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. In other words, if, if during your time on earth, your pursuit is luxury, money, Comfort instead of a pursuit for God is your comfort. God is your treasure. God is your helper. God is the one who gives you mercy because you recognize I need His help and His mercy. If your life is a pursuit of whoever has the most toys, plays with them the most, wins, then this brief stint of life will be the only pleasure you'll ever know. And then eternity will begin, which will be a hell, a living hell. But there's Lazarus. If you're Lazarus, and his name means God's my helper kind of a thing. It means Lazarus was a believer. 
Jesus is not saying, poor people go to heaven, rich people don't. It's not the point of the parable. And his name is pretty significant here. This is the only time in any parable Jesus ever gave a name to anybody. Lazarus. God is helper. And this short stint of a life was a misery in this story. But it it ended. And he was seated by Abraham. And then Abraham continues in verse 26. And besides all this, to the rich man, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Besides all this, Mr. Rich Man, besides the reality that your own love for money and your lack of compassion for Lazarus, your lovelessness, which was evidence that you did not love God, besides all this, your place in torment is now fixed. Any thought of a temporary purgatory where you can spend a few hundred or a few thousand or ten thousand years purging your remaining sin, doing atonement, so that there will become the time you will be released from there and cross over into heaven. That's out of the question, at least with these words. Jesus seems to say, the bed that you make in this very short temporal life is the one you will sleep in. Forever. As the Hebrew writer put it, chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto human beings to die once. And after that, the judgment. Now, what Jesus is doing, this doesn't mean Pharisees or anybody, the way you use your finances, your money, your goods. Oh, look at that. They gave so much to the poor. You took care of that person. You showed love. You earned your way into heaven. You purchased heaven. It's not at all what Jesus is saying. The lesson that He is teaching is the one that's throughout the New Testament. He's teaching that the way you use your money, you use your time down here, you use your, your talents. The way you use your stuff shows whether your heart has been truly regenerated. I mean, born again. I mean, in other words, shows whether you truly are one of those people who has faith in Christ that clings, that faith, another word for faith, is to embrace Him as your treasure. It, it shows it to one degree of another. So there's burning out. Idolatry. I said burning out. There's a process going. It's burning out. Idolatry. And love for money. And it's producing, as we saw in Galatians 5, faith working itself out. It's a middle voice. Working itself out. It's producing. It's coming out. Love there. And as I started the sermon, what John and James were saying, they said, that kind of faith, that's not what we're talking about. 
So let, me, let, me, let me just say that all another way then. What are you talking about? Our lives, what we do, in the context of chapter 16, Jesus is just so forthright with money. What we do has a connection to heaven and hell. That's what he seems to say. So let me just kind of help you here. Jesus went to the cross to save sinners. That's right. And he's the only salvation. Okay. We don't save ourselves. Okay, here's the question. Who are those people being saved by Jesus? Well, you can say it different ways, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe. That's right. All who believe. What does that mean? All who turn from their sin and embrace Him personally. Embrace the message of the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Okay, that's who those people are. Those who come to faith. And So that's the question. Then what does that mean? What is this faith. Well, it's a heart. It's not a religion. It's not a little act. It's a heart that is embracing Christ. Embracing the message of Jesus as its greatest treasure. That's seen. See, legalism. Jesus never was a legalist. He never taught legalism. Legalism at its core means that person somehow thinks that what they are doing or the way that they are or their genetic pool somehow makes them deserve and earn heaven. That's legalism. Jesus is teaching that the way you go to heaven by salvation that He purchased on the cross is that you are becoming the kind of person who prefers God. Who prefers the promises of the gospel laid up for you in heaven which at its core means prefers who it is that's there in heaven. God, your treasure. That's what he's teaching. That's what he's been saying in chapter 16. Where, where your heart is, there's where your money is. Where your money is, there's where your heart is. It reflects where your heart is. why Jesus said, you can't worship God and your temporal, earthly pleasures, mammon, money, stuff, the things it buys. Now, notice the point Jesus is driving home as He continues the story. At this point now, the rich man is in torment. Judgment has fallen. The axe has cut his life down. It's over. It's fixed. It's too late. And you pick up in verse 27. And He said then, then I beg you, Father, Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 
So this guy knows that his family is pursuing the same kind of selfish, godless, loveless life that he himself had been doing that landed him here. And they're going to come and meet him where he's at. Unless somehow they turn around. They repent. They have a change of heart. So he says, Abraham, send Lazarus back to the living, mortal living. Send him there. That'll freak him out. And they'll repent. Verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Okay. Remember, this is Jesus' story, okay? And in Jesus' story, He has Abraham say, they have the book. That's what He just said. They have the Bible. They hear the Bible. These guys hear it every week in synagogue. Let them hear it. That Bible, Moses, the prophets, is their means of salvation. Which is true for every one of us in this room this morning. See, the Scripture, Abraham's saying, the Scripture, if they would open their mind and their heart to it, it would reveal to them their wretchedness. It would reveal to them their lack of compassion and their selfishness and their self-centeredness and their arrogance. It would show them that they're money lovers and that they're doomed lest they Repent. It would lead them to Christ, the Savior. Moses and the prophets would. Isn't that what Jesus said to His disciples after His resurrection? On the road to Emmaus, quote, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And Jesus goes on, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. That's Moses' answer. They got the Bible. That's the means by which anyone will be saved. Meaning, the Word of God through man, spoken, delivered. That's how He's going to save us. As we read on, this is the next thing. Just it just stuns me because it's like when I look back in 33 years, I've I've had this experience with human beings. It is amazing the arrogance of the unregenerate person on how God ought to be and how church ought to be done. It is mind-boggling. And as we see here, this rich man, he really knows what ought to be done. And so, here he is. 
Here's this guy in eternal punishment, in hell. And he's got advice for Abraham on how Abraham ought to do evangelism. Verse 30. And he said, because Abraham said, no, they got Moses and the prophets. He said, no, Abraham, you got the, no, it's, it's wrong. Unhelpful, Abraham. But if someone goes to my family, to my brothers, from the dead, then they will repent and be saved. See, his brothers like him, he knows they go to synagogue, he knows outwardly. Now he knows much more clearly where the heart is. He's saying, Abraham, you, no, you don't understand my brother. The Word of God isn't going to work. It didn't work for him. He knew it. He says, it's not going to work. Don't just tell them to read the Bible and hear it and open their hearts and their minds to it. It doesn't work, Abraham. But if you spook them, bringing Lazarus back from the dead, then their heart will change and they will repent. And then comes Abraham's final shocking statement, verse 31. Abraham responded to the rich man this way. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. If a person is so in love with money, things, that they're deaf, religious people, church-going people, that they're deaf, to the written Word of God, to the commands of God, to the warnings of God, to the promises of God laid out in Scripture and in the Gospel. If their love for money is that strong that they can't hear, then even a resurrection from the dead will not change their hearts and bring repentance. Remember verse 14 in this chapter. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things that Jesus is speaking and they ridiculed Him. Okay, I just want to pull back. I did that from... Think of it. Luke knows what he's doing. He's not an automatic writer. What do I write? He is writing a history, a narrative. Okay, and, I, and, and he's taking these historical accounts and I think he knows how it's piecing together as he writes for his Gentile readers. So in chapter 16, and they ridiculed him. So I think underneath in Luke is, okay, my Gentile readers, suppose these Pharisees have Jesus rise from the dead. Will they have a change of heart to really hear the Word of God? And his answer is, no. Ultimately, no. 
No one will. Because it's a sin problem. It's a heart of sin problem. And whether you get spooked by a resurrection won't change the heart. And so the heart will never change unless the person is raised spiritually from the dead. They will never truly repent and be put on the new road of joy in Christ and overflowing love for others. That's Jesus' point in Abraham's lips. The love of money will continue to drag your brothers to hell. Unless their heart is changed to hear Moses and obey Moses. Repent. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Everyone who believes. It means the news, the message, it means words. Sentences, statements, propositions, arguments are the means of the salvation of mortal sinners on this earth. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Are you a hearer of the Word of God? Are you being changed and molded by the book? By your reading of it, you're meditating upon it, you're hearing it preached, you're discussing it. Is the Scripture causing your heart to be released more and more from the love of things to the treasure of who God is? And thus, where you see fruit growing on the tree of your life and how you deal with and love other human beings with your time, your money, your giftings, your talents. Luke chapter 16 has been clear. Jesus tells two parables. The first, warning all of us to use our treasure that we have for the short time down here shrewdly. To use it in a way that loves other people's souls with the Gospel. Money is a test of our faithfulness. If we don't use our money, in chapter 16, Jesus says, to show how much we treasure God over things. Then verse 11 says, there's no reason to think that God will ever entrust to us the riches 
of heaven. See, it's that teaching that caused the Pharisees to ridicule, to open their mouths and to mock Jesus publicly. Why? Because Jesus' teaching stabbed them in the heart. And they hated it. And Jesus goes on to tell us why they hated it. Because they were fake. I mean, they didn't wake up saying, I'm a faker today. They were deceived. They did not love God. That's why they could not recognize the Savior. They were lovers of money. And what they did with their money and what they did not do with their money showed. And so then Jesus tells this parable of the rich man, the rich, religious, Jewish man, and Lazarus. And he says, this rich Jewish man ended up in hell. Okay, I'm closing. This is where it's really good. Jesus went to the cross to save sinners. And whosoever will have a heart change and embrace freely that salvation will be absolutely saved. Okay? So, so, so what's this thing saying to, to, to us who say, I think I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. It means this. Until the day we drop dead, we are to be about being desperate to be hearers of the Word of God. Don't let next week be a week where you don't hear Moses and the prophets and the apostles. Where you don't let it be changing your heart to grow affection called worship of God. And shown tangibly in how you deal horizontally with other human beings in the church and in your family and outside the church called loving your neighbor is yourself. Come, Alex. So I'm just going to close with where I started. No wonder the Apostle John told us, by this we know love. That Jesus laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and in talk, but in deed and in truth. And James exhorts us, What good is it, my brothers, if anyone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful knowing that we bring to the equation of our salvation nothing that causes it. We bring sin, our sinfulness, our unworthiness, our undoneness, and we hear the sweet words that your son became one of us and lived in perfect righteousness on our behalf to give it to us forever. And that he suffered and died bearing the punishment for our sins. And you raised him from the dead. And in great joy, those of us who are yours, you have manifested that salvation to us intimately by bringing us to faith in Him. And we thank you for Romans 7. That as we hear this today, we would find daily our great hope, our great rest in the justification, Lord Jesus, that you have purchased for us as we then move from our prayer time throughout our day, desiring fruit, fruit of genuineness shows and how you are working in us as we sin and as we repent as we taste kindness to another and in the next hour fail as we rest at her head at night knowing look at that oh I messed up and I hate it is happening, which is evidence that we are eternally secure in you. To the glory of your God, do this in us. Continue to work these things now in these next few moments in differing hearts.